This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to votevets.org. I have been of the opinion that the only way to save the Republican Party is that Trump is beaten so soundly that it is such a rejection, not just of Trump, but of Trumpism, of the populist national impulses that have not just taken root in the Republican Party, but are now ascendant and dominant. And I thought like, okay, if you sort of burn it down and send that message, can you rebuild with something that does have an affirmative vision? that brings about a new generation of Republicans. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. Today, I'm talking to Sarah Longwell, publisher of The Bulwark and co-founder of Republicans for the Rule of Law, about being a staunchly never-Trump Republican and about the future of her party. Sarah Longwell, welcome to Burn the Boats. You're the publisher of The Bulwark, a past board chair of the Law Cabinet Republicans, and a graduate of Kenyon College, which sits right in the heart of Ohio's 7th Congressional District. I think a few listeners are going to appreciate why that's important to me. And you're also the co-founder of Republicans for the Rule of Law. Tell us about that effort, what motivated it, and where it stands. First of all, thanks for having me. After the 2016 election, there were a lot more never-Trumpers, as we're called, than there are now. But at the time, I was really thinking about how do you organize and build a home for all of the disaffected Republicans who felt the way that I do? And like some of my compatriots, Bill Kristol, Linda Chavez, Mona Sharon, former Republican Governor Christine Todd Whitman, former Congressman Bob Inglis, like there's a whole group of us who in the Trump era feel politically homeless. And so I thought, well, look, we should really build a home for those people. And that's why we set up Defending Democracy Together. And it was really meant to be a place where traditional Republicans could push back against this particular Republican president who doesn't feel very Republican to a lot of us. And our first and probably our most well-known project is Republicans for the Rule of Law, which we started during the Mueller investigation to protect the investigation from political interference, because if you recall at the time when it got started, President Trump was sort of doing a lot of saber rattling about potentially firing Bob Mueller. But since then, we've done a whole bunch of other things on election security, on impeachment, and just generally trying to uphold some standard of constitutional norms from the Republican perspective in the face of a Republican president that we see as not always having much fidelity to the rule of law. Isn't it a bit of wishful thinking, though, to claim to own the Republican perspective in a political landscape where this Republican president has approval in the 90-plus percentile from rank-and-file Republicans when 
barely a handful of elected Republicans are aligned with you in speaking out. Yeah, but I wouldn't claim that we speak for the majority of the Republican Party. In fact, I, I would sort of readily admit that our ranks have dwindled and with them some of my hopes for what we were doing. Like I said, it was always a home for disaffected Republicans, meaning those people who just couldn't get on the Trump train and saw so much of what he was doing is actually counter to a lot of the philosophies that traditional sort of classical liberal, and I mean that not in terms of political liberals, but people who are committed to sort of the Western world order. So I wouldn't say that we speak for the majority of Republicans. I'm sort of disappointed. I'm not sort of disappointed. I'm extremely disappointed. I'm most fundamentally disappointed with how much the Republican Party has decided to fall in line with Donald Trump. And so for us, it was less about claiming that we are the mainstream Republican voice today, but to instead be probably more like a uh, a narrow band of Republicans who are pushing back from within the party. At what point do you cut your losses and say, you know what, it's no longer my party. It has a leader that is overwhelmingly supported. It has a leadership that has fallen in line. We may be the sane ones, but we're we're fringe at this point. Yeah, that's a good question. I think if Donald Trump wins a second term, I don't think that there's that many of us, and I, I can't speak for everybody, but I, I don't know there's that many of us that then would say, boy, we've been really influential in the Republican Party and are making a huge difference. But I really saw a value Certainly back in 2018, when there were maybe more of us and there was more of an institutional pushback against some of the things Trump was doing is playing a really valuable role. But yeah, I mean, I think the question is, where do you go? You know, I think um, for a lot of people who've been lifelong Republicans and who have been mainstream voices in the conservative movement to just sort of say, hey, we're all Democrats now, doesn't quite feel right. But I don't think that any of us would say that we feel much kinship with the modern Republican Party of today. Can you build on that a little bit, this idea of where would you go? Because there is so much institutional inertia. And I'm talking to someone who has been a a real part of that as a founder of a firm in D.C. and um, a VP of a, a giant in the conservative consulting establishment. I mean, there really is a ton of inertia behind the two-party system. And and on the right, on the Republican side, there's not a whole lot of incentive to build a new home, even if it were the, the right thing for the country, even if most, as you call them, traditional Republicans no longer have that home in today's Republican Party. In fact, all the incentives run the other way. And it's one of the reasons you've seen so many people who were never Trump to start with, conservatives who have subsequently fallen in line and endorsed the president. And so there's not many incentives to be a Republican voice. And there's tremendous incentives to sort of pick a side and be on a team, especially in Washington, where it's sort of a team town. And so I think that, you know, for us, we're all operating in an environment where the only incentive is to say what we truly believe, to do what we truly think is right, and to fight for those values in whatever way we can with whatever platforms we have access to, which is why we've had to build our own. I mean, the bulwark was meant to be, to some degree, the intellectual infrastructure or the journalism infrastructure for people who felt the way we did, the same way that Defending Democracy Together is meant to be sort of the advocacy structure for what we're doing. But you're absolutely right that there's just not many incentives for people who you know, would believe things from a sort of mainstream policy perspective that might have previously comported with Republicans and and who, you know, find ourselves not really on board with a lot of the 
the policies that that might be advocated by Democrats. But the thing is, is that it's not about policy as much right now. I mean, at least for me, you know, I think you can transcend the tribalism and the policy debates in this moment and say, is what Donald Trump is doing with all of the corruption and with the complete absence of character, with the sort of cozying up to dictators, all you can do is sort of fight for the things that you believe in and push back against the things that you think are wrong. For the uninitiated, can you describe the risks that one has to take professionally to break ranks when you have a communications firm in D.C.? It either plays for the red team or the blue team, and charting another course or a middle course leaves you with no clients. Yeah, I mean, look, I had to leave my old firm, which, as you said, was very much sort of a on the Republican side. And I had to try to chart a new path. And I think where the opportunity is, and I, I don't really mean it financially as much as I mean it in terms of doing work that you're proud of and that you want to do, is that as the Democratic Party has has moved further left and the Republican Party has moved further right, there's actually sort of a lot of not well-worn road in a place around consensus politics. You know, there's actually a lot more that Americans agree on than one might think in our current state of polarization. And I think that there's, for those people who sort of believe in, you know, finding actual solutions to some of these problems that feel intractable, like immigration or like guns or some issues on the environment, there is actually a lot of room to push for some issues. I mean, there's a lot of room morally, but does the marketplace allow that? Is there a market for that kind of a practical, moderate approach to problem solving? It just seems to me like the traction is all on the extremes. That's who pays to have advocates and messengers out there. I mean, certainly how the big firms operate, isn't it? Yeah, there's no doubt that you're right in large part, but there is, there's a lot of people who are frustrated with Washington's inability to do anything. And there are certain issues, and immigration is one of them, where Americans are actually in much greater agreement than you might think, where the vast majority of Americans believe that immigration is a net good. And what they'd like to see is just some meaningful policy that, you know, isn't, hey, we have no borders and everybody gets to come in versus, hey, we need a wall from sea to shining sea. Like most Americans are not on either sides of those debates. And you're right that there's a lot of incentives to sort of push both those things and to use them as wedge issues to sort of virtue signal to your base. But there's a whole other group of people who are like, actually, we'd really like to see this problem solved. And so I think that there is room for people who want to try to push into that space of problem solving. But I think you're right to be skeptical of how much optimism there is. I think there's there's certainly work to be done because it's a real problem. But hey, look, is, is there an entire business model built on that? I guess I will see. I was going to say, have you experienced enough of a coalescing around those moderate viewpoints to actually create a market and build a client base, you know, that isn't into the virtue signaling and the, and the raw politics of it and is instead about finding solutions? You know, actually, it's it's one of the things that keeps me optimistic is that what I have seen over the last couple of years is a number of people who would consider themselves center left, center right, or even just centrist who are very interested in doing that. You're right that there's bigger forces on both sides, but there's not that many people trying to be in this space of, hey, can we actually solve some of these intractable problems as opposed to just using them as a cudgel to hit the other side with? And so I have actually found a lot of people who have an appetite for it and who want to get into that space. And there's been a lot more cross-partisan 
alliance building around some of these like norms, values, and institutions, kind of the fundamental things that we can all agree on, as opposed to some of the like narrow policy fights. Because I actually think there's quite a bit of consensus on the idea that things like the rule of law should still matter. And so I don't think that all hope is lost, but that's me. I'm like a, you just can't beat the optimism entirely out of me. (laughs) One of the interesting approaches I've seen here in Ohio is the the subtle rejection of Trumpism. And you saw it in Mike DeWine's decision to move aggressively and early to contain COVID-19 without openly challenging President Trump. But every action he took was a repudiation of what Trump was arguing from behind his bully pulpit, minimizing the dangers of COVID-19, lying to the American public, while Mike DeWine took center stage in Ohio and did just the opposite without launching that frontal assault against Trumpism. Is that a viable path that can be replicated or did we just get lucky here? Well, I think Ohio is lucky. You've got somebody like Mike DeWine who's been willing to sort of act in a way that he thinks is the most beneficial for the people of Ohio and has stood up against Trump a little bit. I just, so I don't want to minimize anything that he's done because he's done more than most people. I think, you know, in a better world, you'd see far more, especially where we are right now. Like the reason he's doing that is because we're in the middle of a deadly pandemic and he's just not willing to put politics over people's lives. I wish he were a little less lonely in that. You know, there's a couple other Republican governors who've been really good, Governor Hogan of Maryland and Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. But the problem is, is that everybody has to approach it with these kid gloves, right? They just don't want to be on the receiving end of a mean tweet. And I think until Republicans act a little stronger, you know, there needs to be an active, and and Governor Hogan's probably done this better than anybody, a real active pushing back against this administration. I mean, the thing that I find so stunning is that there's not more Republican voices, not just sort of subtly pushing back, but saying outright, this is a president who is pushing misinformation in the middle of a pandemic, who is giving people the wrong information. You know, one of the things this just sticks out as an example, but the president's obsession with, I'm not going to pronounce it right, hydrochloroquine, that is a drug that I have a good friend who has lupus, And that is a drug that people with lupus need in order to survive. And they now can't get it. They can't get it. And so, like, this is just an example of how I think obsequious and just unwilling Republicans have been to really boldly. I mean, this is a moment that requires real leadership from these people, and we're not getting it. I'm a little surprised that three years into this administration, you still find that stunning. I'm wondering if you have a theory yet as to why this party has not found its spine, why the leadership of this party continues to, well, I won't proffer a theory for you, but surely you've given it some thought. There must be something deeply psychic at work. Yeah, I think there's a couple things. One is the voters. A lot of these elected officials, Ted Cruz, Ben Sass. I mean, pick them, most of them, all of them, all of them <laughs> were, were, were originally very forceful in their condemnation, Lindsey Graham. And the fact is they just couldn't maintain their political careers without Donald Trump, which is why you saw everybody just start to run to him. Actually, to your point about DeWine, right? So right now, all of these officials have to get things for their states in order to save people's lives, PPE, ventilators. And they know that 
Trump will be vindictive and nasty and will actively withhold some of these things from their state unless they appropriately kowtow to him. And so I think that a lot of people made these calculations that in some ways were pragmatic. You know, how am I going to get things done for my state if I'm at odds with the White House? I can't be. Some of them were political. I need his voters. I need his supporters to vote for me. I mean, that's that's certainly, I think, Lindsey Graham. Some of it is just just fear, right? I think the mean tweet, the psychology of that has gotten to be overwhelming on the Republican side. But I guess the reason that I still remain shocked is that what's happened over the three years, of course, I have seen them capitulate time and time again to things that I never thought they would and remain silent in the face of things that are, you know, horrifically racist or or what have you. But I guess the thing that I can't figure out right now is that to have people dying at this rate and to have us be in the middle of a pandemic and to still have Republicans not be able to find their voices. Yes, I am constantly like shocked that there's no trigger, right? There's no thing that just goes too far. I used to ask people what line would have to be crossed for you to find the courage to speak out against this president. And I think the experience of this pandemic suggests that there is no line that it is such an utter capitulation. I mean, the Republican Party of today bears zero resemblance to the Republican Party that helped impeach President Nixon, that had representative after representative standing up and saying, my conscience dictates my actions here, even if it may go against the interests of my party. The Republican Party that held Nixon accountable is no more And we shouldn't be surprised anymore at the total capitulation that Trump has engineered. Yeah, I mean, you know, I came of age during the Clinton impeachments, sort of a political age. And I think that my estimation of the Republican Party in large part, or my my conception of it, was learned in those moments, right? So I remember feeling a tremendous sense of frustration at the double standards of the feminist movement at the time. And, you know, the Republicans talked about morality and character mattering. They've always talked about the importance of fiscal responsibility, not allowing the debt to go out of control. Like this is, you'd say the party of Nixon. I wasn't alive for the party of Nixon, but I would say that the conception that I had formed of the Republican party to then have it tested in the era of Trump and to see that character actually didn't matter, to see that the debt And the deficit and fiscal responsibility didn't, I mean, you may recall there was an entire movement, the Tea Party movement during the Obama years that was very much built around the Republican Party saying, you know, the debt is unsustainable, we can't live like this. And to just see that none of it mattered has actually been really disorienting because it makes you feel sort of like nihilistic, like does anything matter? Is there a thing that the Republican Party now is affirmatively for Because all the things that I thought it was affirmatively for, that I was affirmatively for, is just gone. Do you have an answer? What's your theory as to what holds the Republican Party together, frankly, in a way that it hasn't been held together in a long time? I mean, the degree of consensus among Republicans is pretty darn strong, excepting you and Mike Gerson and Bill Kristol and a handful of others. Yeah. I mean, I think that the answer is that people are defined much more these days about what they're against than what they're for. People are against Democrats. They want to own the libs. And I think there's been this thing where they've 
talk themselves into this idea that the Democrats are so existentially bad that literally anybody on on their side, you know, Trump is more is like a weapon, like a blunt instrument to hit the left with. And that to me is not a good enough basis for a political party to just be against something and not to be affirmatively for anything, especially if you sacrifice everything you're affirmatively for. Well, it's certainly not sustainable over the long term. It probably cannot be conveyed from generation to generation. I I don't think it's going to make the generational leap now, much less carry through the next election cycle, which begs the question, what is the future of the Republican Party post-Trump? What happens if Trump is soundly defeated? Will there be a ritualistic atonement? And will the Republican Party rediscover its soul? Uh, I think you'll certainly see if a Democrat's in charge it rediscover its commitment to fiscal responsibility. Um, <laughs> and I think the question is, is when you've gambled all of your moral authority, do people still listen to you on those things? When you vote to for a national emergency and, you know, even the constitutional conservatives among them vote for things like a national emergency so Trump can get his wall. Like, what are they going to say when the Democrats decide to declare a national emergency so that they can appropriate funds to fight climate change? Can they credibly say anything? But let's break that down because it's actually a really good question I think about a lot. I have been of the opinion that the only way to save the Republican Party is that Trump is beaten so soundly that it is such a rejection, not just of Trump, but of Trumpism, of the populist national impulses that have not just taken root in the Republican Party, but are now ascendant and dominant. And I thought like, okay, if you sort of burn it down and send that message, can you rebuild with something that does have an affirmative vision that brings about a new generation of Republicans? I would say my concern, or the reason that I'm less optimistic about that as I might have once been, is that just because Trump loses doesn't mean Trump goes away, right? He will still have 77 million Twitter followers that he will use to, you know, bludgeon the Republican Party into doing what he wants. You know, he's got kids who now are tremendously politically connected. People from his administration are now fanning out into other political roles. You know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is going to be the governor of Arkansas at some point. Corey Lewandowski wants to run for Senate in New Hampshire. And to the extent that, you know, you can really beat out Trumpism, the only way you can do it is if it is so thoroughly rejected by voters and that they see no sort of viable political path forward with this. But I'm, I'm worried about all the lessons that have been learned over this time. And certainly if Trump wins a second term, I think there's no chance of that. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place. The sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. If you are counting on the loss of moral authority of today's Republican Party resulting in a broad rejection by the American voter, you're also counting on 
the media to convey that. And I'm wondering if that faith isn't misplaced. I mean, the majority of Republicans don't believe that we have a trillion-dollar deficit. When you have information so stovepiped that Trump's narrative wins the day among the vast majority of Republican voters, even though it's diametrically at odds with the truth, how do you break through? Yeah, you're not asking me easy questions. I mean, these are the question about the siloed media environment is both, I think, crucial to why we have the political polarization we have. It is the reason that we have so much disinformation and misinformation. And how you solve that in a major way, I don't quite know the answer to because the fact is, you know, I do these focus groups all the time with both Trump voters and reluctant Trump voters, mostly people who rate him not very highly. And while they don't like Trump much, they hate the media and they really dislike the Democrats and they don't trust any institutions. And how we operate politically in a widespread environment that transcends party lines where people have no trust in things is an extremely big problem that I'm not sure how we solve. I mean, the reason that we built the bulwark was to sort of collect center-right voices who were going to argue from a non-tribal standpoint about the political issues of the day. And I've been sort of shocked at how successful we've been, which I shouldn't admit that, I guess, to say that I'm shocked by our success. But there is a sort of latent hunger, I think, for voices that don't seem to be sort of mastered by either political party and that aren't incentivized strictly on clicks. I mean, you know, when you ask about the incentives, especially with the media, the media writ large, whether you're the New York Times or whether you're a local paper, like the business model got so upended over the last couple of decades that now people feel like they have to have a side in order to fight for eyeballs and they have to be more incendiary and salacious. And that's a huge problem because now nobody trusts those voices. And so, yeah, we've had a lot of success, I think, just from being voices that people think are not owned by anybody and are not sort of just playing for a team. And I think at some point we've got to figure out how to shift the incentives so that they're not so perverse that everybody is trying to be on one side or another. Do you feel like the bulwark is actually succeeding in persuading people or is it just a gathering place, a place for the refugees of the Republican Party to to make themselves feel better. I mean, the very name suggests that you're not a vanguard. You're not breaking new ground. You're just holding the line as best you can with a dwindling rear guard. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that has surprised me is what the makeup of our audience is, because I think it is a it is a lot of sort of disaffected Republicans, center-right refugees, people who had traditionally read the Weekly Standard, which was a mainstay of conservative journalism for a couple of decades. But I think it's it, people, we get emails all the time that are like, I'm a Democrat who's just always been interested in what smart conservatives are saying, or or there's people who are who write to us to say that how much they appreciate the fact that we do seem non-tribal, that we're trying to engage in good faith. You know, part of what, what we're trying to do is less cater to a specific ideology and, and maybe just do something that's different from what a lot of places are doing. So for example, we will publish something from one of us that argues a certain thing, and then we will publish something from somebody else that argues the opposite. Because part of what we're trying to do is restore something that we think has been lost which is an opportunity to have real discussions and real debates that don't devolve into partisan food fights and that you can have in good faith and argue these things out. And so I feel like the audience is multifaceted. I'd love to see that as well. 
an outlet that is able to present two sides without finger pointing and yelling. But when is the last time you got an email from a Trump voter who says, you know what, you're right. I never thought about it that way. This guy is not the leader I thought I was voting for, or you changed my mind about about the deficit or something like that. Does that happen? Or is the stove piping that we're both worried about, is the bulwark a victim of that too? I would love to think that anybody is receiving lots of emails from people being like, boy, I read your article and now I'm really rethinking my view on this. I don't, I don't know how many people are getting anything like that. I- well, not, not anymore, but you recall in the old days, back to the Nixon era, when news anchors swayed public opinion in the course of a single night. Yeah, here's where I think it has been influential and useful to have an outlet like the Bulwark. So while never Trumpers, it's kind of a Washington term and it's kind of a Washington group. I don't think there's lots of people out in the world. I mean, maybe there's some, but I'm not sure that that's like dominantly how they characterize themselves as never Trumpers. Also, I don't know that that's how we characterize themselves. It's just one of these terms of art that have like popped up that now everybody uses as shorthand. But what I think you are seeing is college-educated voters in the suburbs, which always were a mainstay for Republicans, are leaving the party in droves. And they don't necessarily consider themselves Democrats in the traditional sense, but they are absolutely not here for Trump's Republican Party. So these are people who might have voted for John McCain or Mitt Romney. You know, some people remember the term security moms. Those voters, they are just draining out of the Republican Party. And I would say to the extent that we have like a constituency for our writing, it is a lot of those people. And, you know, you saw this in the primaries where there was this massive increase in turnout in a lot of these suburban districts that helped propel Joe Biden far ahead of Bernie Sanders when it looked for a moment like Bernie Sanders could potentially be the nominee. And so I think there are a lot of these voters who would consider themselves maybe like center right, maybe even center, center left or independents right-leaning independents who had voted Republican relatively reliably. They weren't, they're not huge partisans. And those are the people that Trump is, that's the reason he really wanted to run against Bernie Sanders, because it was the only way to potentially get those people back. But with Joe Biden, I think there's a lot of those people who who don't vote for Trump and, and who are looking for a bit of a return to normalcy. I have heard you say that you believe in the goodness of the American people and that if you can just make the case to them, we tend to do the right thing. How hopeful are you between now and November 3rd that that case will be made in a compelling way and the message that you want to see sent about Trumpism will be received and will resound on election day? I'm pretty hopeful. Look, I think that um, it's hard to suss this stuff out because you end up forcing people when it comes to elections into binary choices, right? And so people either have to vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And also how you think about this election is very much in flux because, you know, how people get elected has a lot to do with turnout and who votes and how many people and in what areas. And right now we're in a situation where it's unclear what the November election looks like in terms of people being able to go to the polls and vote in the way that they normally did. Are we still in the midst of a pandemic? Do people still have lots of fears about turning out? I mean, there's there's a fight right now going on, one that I'm involved in around, you know, expanding absentee voting and vote by mail, because we really almost likely will still be in a scenario where there's not a vaccine. Hopefully there will be much more widespread testing, but where you may have people somewhat fearful about 
going to the polls in the traditional way. And so it's a little bit hard to just game out how it works. But I do think all things being equal, you do see in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania, maybe not Ohio, but Arizona, potentially even Florida, where there's a surge of Democratic voters and then the sort of right-leaning independents that I was talking about who did turn out and vote for Democrats, moderate Democrats in the 2018 election, giving Joe Biden a pretty resounding victory, at which point the Republican Party will have to do some soul searching because you cannot build a winning political coalition over the long term on white working class voters alone. Well, Sarah, it's been wonderful having you on the show. We end every episode with the same question. What is the bravest decision that you have ever been a part of? Oh, it's kind of a self-congratulatory question, huh? Yeah, it's your chance. Well, I hope there's better answers than the one I'll give, but I guess the one that comes to mind is is the most recent, which is I had spent 15 years at a firm that I was going to take over and run on the Republican side. I have my entire universe of professional contacts was in the Republican world. At some point in 2017, I had to decide what I cared about most. And was it having a comfortable team to be on or was it saying the things that I thought were right? And being willing to sort of stay in the party and be a voice internal that was going to take a lot of heat to say that what I thought was happening was wrong. And so I walked away from my firm and I resigned as the board chair of Log Cabin Republicans and started to talk to anybody who would listen about what I thought was wrong. And it doesn't always feel comfortable. People are pretty mad at you on the Republican side and they call you a lot of names and I get a lot of hate mail. But I also get a lot of emails from young people saying how glad they are to see somebody out there saying this. So maybe I guess that. I'm glad you mentioned your decision to resign from the chairmanship of Law Cabinet Republicans, because that blew up in a big way. And I would imagine you took heat from people that had been friends and colleagues for a very long time, walking away from that. Yeah, you know, I'm on the other side of this issue from a a lot of people that I've been friendly with for a very long time. And and I bear them no ill will. And I understand people have their rationalizations and their reasons for why they stay. But, you know, I got to look at myself every day. And there's just, it's in my sense of right and wrong. I can just very clearly look at this and say, this is wrong, what's happening right now in the Republican Party. You can't just sit back and not say anything about a party that is dealing in untruths every day. Support a guy whose political candidacy was launched on the back of a racist smear against a president. A president I didn't support personally, but but I know a racist smear when I see one. And so... I'm just going to have to agree to disagree with those folks. But I was being a pain in the butt before I resigned. You know, I I was I wouldn't let us endorse him in 16. And look, they were pretty eager to endorse him for 2020. And it was just better if I if I stepped away. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. We'd love to have you back. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to Sarah for joining me. You can find her communications firm online at longwellpartners.com and find her on Twitter at at SarahLongwell25. Next time on Burn the Boats, I'm talking to Max Rose and Ali Sufan, U.S. representative and counterterrorism expert, respectively, and co-authors of a New York Times op-ed titled, We Once Fought Jihadists, Now We Battle White Supremacists. 
If you enjoyed today's episode of Burn the Boats, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other listeners find the show. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans' care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Our theme music is Climbing to Greatness by Cody Martin. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.